Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Adam Carolla. We love having great guests on my show, like Jay Leno. The medic runs over and says to the driver, what's your name? How old are you? He goes, I'm Bob Riggle, 81 years old. And he taps me, he goes, what's your name? How old are you? And I said, I'm Bob Riggle, and I'm 81 years old. <laughs> Howie Mandel. If there's anything you could put off as a haircut, and don't take that from a bald guy, but nobody needs a haircut. And Jimmy Kimmel. We get the phone book, and we start calling people in Atlanta. And we reach this old man named Charlie Brown. We're looking up names like Charlie Brown. <laughs> so check out the Adam Carolla Show on Podcast One. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Weiss of The Athletic, and we primarily focus on the Boston Celtics. We talk a lot about Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown's development, but also status reports on their more recent draft picks and on veterans Kemba Walker and Gordon Hayward and plenty of other things along the way, including some thoughts on the Eastern Conference playoff picture, the difference between the three and the two seed, the potential changes of everything else. So thought it was a really fun conversation brought to you by Bet Online. Use the podcast one promo code to both tell them that you came from us and get an awesome sign-up bonus. So that's great to check out. This episode runs well over an hour, probably about an hour 15, everything said and done, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. It's good to be here. It's good to talk about Jason Tatum again for the 100th time. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since you and I did. So, uh, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I think what, what I was kind of envisioning for this podcast was kind of a status of where we were and where we might be going with the Celtics. Then we could talk a little bit broadly about the Eastern Conference and what you're looking for in the bubble. And I, I, so I think, but Tatum is a decent place to start. But let's let's go kind of big picture first. And I think he'll be a, a, a portion of this, which is your takeaways from the pre-hiatus 2019-2020 Celtics season so far. Uh, they were good. They were pretty good. Um, it's, I'm glad you asked. This is why I love coming on the show because everyone's always asking me about like, what are they going to look like now? But I don't know. They're going to be probably crappy at first and then get it together at some point. But before the hiatus, it was things are going really well. And then things very quickly were falling off the deep end. And it was really like the timing was pretty amazing for the season to end on them because the the night before the season ended, they barely won a game in Indianapolis. And had they lost that game, it would have looked like the team was completely falling apart. But the fact that there was a W in the column there at least made it look like that they had survived. But they played pretty poorly down the stretch in that game. And so, you know, the big thing was Kemba Walker's knee, which continues to be uh, – it's not like it's a – it's not an issue, but it is like a concern and a major caution point. So he was dealing with left knee soreness, which is something that seems like it's going to be probably a chronic thing he's going to have to deal with the rest of his career. And he just turned 30, so you know that's, that's pretty reasonable to expect at this point. And he – missed 14 games or so in um in 2020 and when he came back he played a couple games before the shutdown and he still looked like a shell of himself he just didn't have much burst he's a high jumping three-point shooter like he likes to come around a screen have a big bounce hop step and then jump up into a three and he just he didn't look like he was able to do it he clearly just wasn't comfortable he looked like he was playing with like an unstable knee he looked like someone who was playing like he was feeling pain in his knee and he didn't feel confident that it was stable and so right now they're holding him back in practice they're going to put him on a minutes restriction during the seeding games and that's because they're just being extremely cautious when it comes to ramping him up 
up to make sure that he doesn't experience soreness in the playoffs and that there's no setbacks potentially in the playoffs. So this is just the Celtics are one of those teams that um, they have a pretty horrible injury history. So they try to be at least as extremely cautious as possible. But so I think that 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 is the big storyline that both was relevant then and then continues to be relevant now, because obviously they need Kemba Walker playing at his very best if they want to have a chance at going all the way. Right. And I mean, a lot of it is uh, a common refrain for me is defining success. And I think that's what's such an interesting challenge with this Boston Celtics team is they, to me, they were in the regular season. I think you argue for the most part, they were either, they were either the second or third best team in the Eastern conference. The Bucks were clearly the number one team, not only in, in the East, but in the overall NBA. And then, but Toronto did have a better record. They had a, you know, it was kind of one of those one team performed, overperformed their point differential, I believe. And the other one did not. Um, and Boston, so that means, you know, theoretically, let's say, let's say we were going in a normal season because there's obviously a lot of quirks to this. Maybe we'll discuss those. But so, like, if Boston in this year, remember they changed point guards, every uh, the development, like, if they get the three seed, make it cleanly through the first round, no real sweat, and then lose a tough series to the Raptors in the second round, like, what is your instinct on whether for, let, let's call it for management, so age and, and ownership, do you think they would have seen that as a success? I think they'd be a little disappointed if they do lose to Toronto, but I, I do think it's, if you go from the beginning of the season and you go from really the peak of where this team got to in this season, I think it's, but they're both reasonable outcomes. Um, before the season started, they were very clear um, that this was a bridge season to next year being their best shot at a title. And they've outperformed those expectations. And so now, you know, it, it, the, the fact that they're, that they're a three seed doesn't inherently make them a contender, but the fact that they're top five in offensive and defensive rating does make them a contender. And so, um, I th- so I think that just like they, they can't put up those kind of numbers and perform as well as they have in those marquee games against the L.A. teams. And they've played Toronto very evenly so far this year. And Milwaukee has been the one team that they just can't they can't like Milwaukee just kicks their ass early in the game to the point that they're playing from behind so severely. So I would assume that if they get to the conference finals. They'll probably if they put up a fight against Milwaukee in the conference finals and they show that like next season they're going to they're going to get even better and they're going to really have a chance to beat Milwaukee. Then I think they would be satisfied with that if they beat Toronto and then they show up against Milwaukee and Milwaukee blows them out in a five game series. Then I think that would definitely be concerning for them and that might even affect their plans moving forward. Uh, for next year, although it seems like especially a team like Boston, but most of the league is probably just going to be trying to hold together whatever they have with this upcoming offseason, since this upcoming offseason seems like it's not going to really have any sort of flexibility. Right. And yeah, I, I think that's the the duality of it for me when I think about like, because I can't speak to what they how they would interpret it. I can speak to how they how like I would. And I was thinking more in broad strokes, you know, like they weren't, the Celtics weren't going to be the best team in the Eastern Conference on paper. And really, this was a table setting season. And so that's why I I said, you know, Jason Tatum is an important part of these early questions is Tatum and Brown in particular, but the support players more broadly, you know, like the the lower end guys, like because you have to fill a bunch of gaps, not just the top end stuff. How did they, how did they adapt? And Tatum... You know, you brought up, and I think this is a fair point. I mean, the Celtics, they only won two games in March. One of them was that three-point win over a limited Indiana team. The other was beating the Cavs of all teams by six. And then they lost a lot of games close, but they lost a bunch of games. 
And, so and they were terrible that. in that Cleveland game, too. But then you also had this stretch. I think it was a little bit later. It was a little bit before that. It was most, like right after the All-Star break. But there was just this extended stretch where Jason Tatum was just annihilating everything, was hitting those step-back threes, was doing so much off the dribble. And so if we're looking at kind of the bigger picture, I would focus more on the development and the like kind of the future. And that's why I would say I would I would have classified the season as a success because we we don't know if you know Tatum was going to continue to shoot 40% on more self-created threes than he's ever taken in his career. We don't know if that was going to continue. And I mean, those numbers are, that's full season. That's not even what he was doing over the last couple months. But those, those sorts of takeaways are positive enough that even a, like a little bitter taste at the end, I think would have made it worth it. Oh, sure. And I mean, and just to contextualize Tatum before we like continue on towards the whole team, you know, a, a lot of a, a lot of naysayers have have speculated that Tatum had a flash in the pan and the kind of thing. And look at where he was at the beginning of the season. And this was just him being hot. Like, yeah, sure. He did hit an incredible hot streak, but I've written a ton about this. And if you look at the numbers, it backs it up. And if you just know Jason Tatum's story and you don't just apply general logic, but you examine the actual case, there are just so many variables and factors that indicate that it wasn't that like while he was extremely hot this was a pretty linear buildup to just him finally peaking or i guess starting to starting to blossom as a player because he's not even close to his peak yet um but so while i don't expect him to be scoring 30 a night necessarily in the playoffs i do think he's going to be playing much more like the guy that he was towards the end of the season than the guy he was at the beginning of the season Right. I think that's totally fair. I think it's it's more the way he was playing is in line and maybe the shot falls a little bit less, but it can fall a little bit less and he's still an immensely productive player. And and something else that I think is really important as a larger takeaway for the Celtics is, you know, they've changed over the roster a fair amount over the co- past couple of years. Not, you know, the, the, the young guys have gotten older, but also just, you know, change point guards. The center position has, has evolved a lot over the couple of years. And that they've consistently, at least in the regular season, but especially in the regular season, I would say they've defended above their talent level, like just physical talent level, that kind of stuff. And so I think that speaks to Brad Stevens. And I think now we're getting to the point where you've had this much turnover where there can be expectations that a Brad Stevens-led, competently general managed, which Danny Ainge will always do, team is going to have this, like their baseline of success is a lot higher than the average team. And there's a lot of value to that too. For sure. And they have they have a nice blend now of continuity, freshness in their uh, roster and hierarchy that they're I think like they've gotten past the problems that plagued them last season when they had like too much talent. and They couldn't really corral it all. Um, and especially the fact that now that that Tatum, Brown and Smart are really growing into their into their games and into their roles within the organization and they've had they've had time here and they have sweat equity within it i think that they have like a much clearer path forward right and i mean there is ah, well we'll get into that a little bit later like the 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 idea that this team is going to get significantly more expensive at some point but something that is a big positive for the celtics is that they have still this large degree of team control you know jalen brown still he agreed already agreed to his extension i think it's looking very good from boston's perspective tatum still you know he'll be extension eligible after this season and that gives that gives some runway for them to figure a lot of this stuff out and yeah it's going to be more expensive so that means certain team building tools like 
let's say, cap space are going to be somewhat difficult, but there is still a pathway to being a better team, especially if some of the young guys develop. I'm sorry, I, uh, you broke up there. I, oh, I no missed problem. the last yeah, few sentences. Yeah, basically that the young guys, the young guys developing could be is going to be important to keeping this team kind of like cost certain, let's say, moving forward. Absolutely. And I mean, that was a huge part of the last few years for them where they had a cycle of first round picks coming into their own and being part of the rotation. And so they're, you know, right now, Romeo Langford and Rob Williams look like they're on the complete periphery of this team's present, but they do have to be a part of the team's future if they want to continue to improve to the point like a huge, a huge uh, concern right now is as good as their top four or five, six players are right now. They have this massive drop off with their depth, and that's probably going to be a factor that's going to hold them back from having a shot at, at advancing into the finals or winning this year. And you know, as much as Brown and Tatum are probably going to improve again next season, um, and if they can get good, healthy years out of Walker and Hayward, like they're get, they're, they're going to get better. But they still need some sort of depth offensively if uh, in, in their rotation, and so that's where they're really counting on Langford to be able to provide some playmaking and scoring depth, Rob Williams to be able to give them some vertical spacing, to be able to give them a player that can roll and play over the top, and they can lob they can lob to him. They could just have him be a threat near the rim that messes with the defense. Like they need to have more variability to this team because I think that their like their offensive scheme I think is in good shape and that even though their offensive scheme doesn't have like a they, they don't have a ton of different ways that they play, their their system is set up that really any of their top guys can take over the offense and run the offense. So I think that they're hard to stop and game plan against in the sense that you can't just take out one of their players and their offense falls apart. But at the same time, they only can really run their offense in a few different ways. And if you can find a way to stop all their guys because your defense works perfectly against them, then that's where you need some of that depth to be able to mix it up. Not to mention they just don't have any shooting help. And that's been an issue for them for a while now. It has, and and I think that's the other kind of thread to the idea of defining success, and why I wanted to frame it there early on is my feeling on these on this current iteration of the Celtics, and hopefully this changes in the next year or so, is that they are some ways more of a regular season team because they have the they have all this intriguing talent, they have certain pieces that could execute, but the problem is when you run up against a truly great team that could take away a lot of what you do. They don't have a lot of counters, as you said, a lot of different ways that, that the Celtics can run their offense. And that what that functionally – the challenge there is that while you never know who that team is going to be at a given time, you can be relatively sure that there will be somebody. And that's why, to me, like I generally have a narrower tier of true championship contenders. Not fringe. The fringe can be varying, varying sizes, depending on it. And the reason why is just because there is this threshold level, and sometimes it involves dominant individual players like Giannis and Kawhi Leonard, both of whom you know like, can create real challenges for damn near everybody. But what what I'm getting at is this idea that there's going to be a buzzsaw. Like that's just the way the NBA works. And like I don't think it's like some sort of harsh, scathing criticism. That the Celtics aren't really design aren't really at the place where they can beat those teams. It's just an acknowledgement of where they are in the process. Oh, for sure. But so, w- would you basically have it as you have Milwaukee and the LA teams on their own tier, and then Toronto and Boston and maybe Denver are also below them? Yes. Okay. Which yeah. is totally reasonable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think that it, you know, for especially 
in non non bubble weird times the idea that those teams more often than not have home court advantage so the idea that you have to beat not only do you have to beat them four out of seven times but you have to beat them four out of seven times with home court disadvantage is a real challenge and so yeah i i think that there and and you know maybe my tier lines are a little bit less faint than other people's for that reason but it's you know i I think you consider how hard it is to break through that group and you know usually and i think this is a benefit of the nba system you know yeah it's not as exciting let's say as march badness but the nba if you kind of treat health as this weird variable that affects teams that affects everybody but it affects teams differently the NBA champions are overwhelmingly deserving. You know, like that's just it, because it's too damn hard to win any other way. Yeah, and it's like it's not like the Bucks don't deserve to win the title, or it wouldn't be enjoyable to watch them win the title. It wouldn't be like it just it wouldn't be like it wouldn't be shocking. But I do expect the this year's finals to be extremely competitive, unless like Milwaukee doesn't make it because you know Giannis got COVID or got hurt or something like that, and then you have a overloaded or a lopsided matchup, but. I mean, I, I don't care about the it, like, the NBA doesn't need to have the element of surprise as far as who's going to make the finals, because usually the competition in the lower rounds is exciting enough. But we know that the finals is going to be an incredible clash. And so and what's great is this season, I think we know that we're going to have that because we know that, you know, both the Clippers and the Lakers, I think most years would look like these are like really two exciting contenders. And we have no idea which one of them is going to be the most likely or is, is going to come out on top. But Milwaukee is just so unbelievably good that I, like there's there is an incredible amount of suspense. And I, I'm that's what I love. And I, I love the fact that even if we know who we expect to end up in the final round, I have no idea what to expect in that final round. And that's you know, that's what I really love about this. Right. And and I think that it's so for me, if Boston is not ends up not being in the tier and I've been wrong before. Like there are there are many times when I've drawn the line and then the team outperforms it. Maybe the the jump that Tatum made towards the end of the pre hiatus stretch, that's real and he elevates them to a different level, especially when you consider how well the Celtics execute defensively within their scheme, that it, it ends up being a little bit different. But I don't think there's any shame in this year's Boston Celtics team being in that tier two. I think that's actually an impressive accomplishment, especially when you get into some of the health things, like you talked about Kemba Walker. Like, yeah, Kemba Walker, if his knees weren't acting up, if they were able to get a little bit, like, to me, like, even it's a small thing, but like if Robert Williams had been able to play more, I think they would look, I think they would look different. I'd probably be a little bit more excited about it. So for, I, I don't think Boston, when you consider the draft capital they had at one point, the young players that they have now, that perennially being in this tier is is tolerable or, sati- or is, is satisfying. I think satisfying better than tolerable because there are a lot worse places to be. But <laughs> it is for the interim. I, I think you have to be happy with it. Oh, for sure. I, the, the, I guess it, to answer your original question, like for sure, this year was a good season, and they clearly have exceeded their expectations for this season. But I think it's I think it's totally appropriate to try that to to raise those expectations considering considering where they are now mostly for the purpose of deciding is is this current core the core that they should be investing in for next season should they be trying to make a trade this upcoming off season based and i think that's something they have to decide based on how things go here especially based on how gordon hayward and kemba walker are both from a health standpoint because they're both dealing with soreness right now that suggests a chronic soreness or injury concern um and they're 
they're, they're both 30 and they are kind of the, they've kind of taken a little bit of a backseat to Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum in the hierarchy of the team. Um, and so, you know, they're just, they're not, they're not completely indispensable. So they have to prove that they are indispensable, which sounds weird talking about an all-star that they just signed to a four-year max deal. But, you know, the NBA moves very fast. Well, not only does the NBA move very fast, but the thresholds when we're, the levels we're talking about are exceedingly high. This isn't, can the Celtics be a good team? Can they win, you know, 50, 50, 60 regular season games? It's, can they win a championship? Can they break into that top three group? And it takes a lot to get there, and it should. Yeah, and I think what, I think just what's great for them is that they, um, what do you call it? They're, they're in a situation where I think their identity is pretty much solidified. Yeah. Okay. And that's they've been trying to figure that out for a while, and they – they took a risk by not taking a risk and deciding to build around Tatum and Brown and not trade them for other all-star wings in their prime. And they played the long game. And frankly, I don't think making any of those trades would have increased their chances of winning back when they were trying to, considering just how well that they performed in those years. And now they're in a position where, you know, if they have a solid playoff run here, there's nothing to there's nothing that would make me think at that point that I wouldn't expect them to be a tier one team next season because we've just we've seen how much Brown and Tatum have grown year to year. Every year it's been pretty significant improvement and you could say whatever you want about what happened with Tatum last year. There were a lot of there are a lot of variables that made his season not go well, but he still made tremendous, tremendous evolutionary strides last season. And obviously this season we've seen it uh, just from last season to the beginning of the season and then over the course of the season. So, you know, maybe maybe the 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 uh, improvement curve will start to flatten a little bit for Tatum at some point, but he's only tw- he just turned 22. So, it's likely that it's going to keep going really high and he's going to get better and better. And Jalen Brown, it's you got to feel for Jalen Brown cuz Jalen Brown would probably be, you know, a huge big time young star if he wasn't playing next to Tatum and he would get significantly more hype than he does, but he's playing next to Tatum so he doesn't get quite the incredible amount of shine on him but also the way that he's uh his uh his social activism and things like that have grown his fan base so much that i feel like he's probably getting to that point anyway plenty more to talk about with jared weiss but first a message from bet online as sports keep coming back so do your chances to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner bet online massive ufc event this weekend plus nascar formula one and the english premier league in full swing there's no shortage of ways to get in on the action go to bet online and use the podcast one promo code to receive your new welcome bonus and then importantly tell them that you came from us and if you're looking for more bet online has simulated madden games nba 2k and ufc happening everyday live for you to watch and wager on and as sports get closer to returning, Bet Online has futures odds on everything you can imagine season win totals, division odds, and even odds in every league championship. So visit Bet Online or use your mobile device to join now and use the Podcast One promo code to tell them you came from us and receive your new welcome bonus at Bet Online, your online wagering experts. What's, what's encouraging for me, we'll, we'll talk about Jalen Brown a little bit, is. Not everybody needs to be the alpha and the omega with the ball in their hands all the time, be like that guy. I think that in order for a, for an ecosystem to work, you need players who succeed in a variety, who succeed in different roles, especially offensively, and then buy in defensively and execute. And I think that what I like about the Tatum Brown combination is it feels like as their games have evolved, 
it hasn't appeared to me, and you would know this better than I would, it hasn't appeared to create friction for them on or off the court, which in many circumstances it does. You can think about how one player, you know, if two players are, they see themselves as peers, maybe not as equals, but as peers, and somebody starts taking more shots, starts having the ball in their hands more, and the other guy's just like, hey, I mean, Jalen Brown, 59% true shooting this year. But... I don't. I don't. I think it. I think it worked really well. I think that the Celtics structured Jalen Brown's contract to basically make sure that they knew that he that they believed in him, and I think that kept him happy. And his it was funny. I remember there was a lot of reaction uh, nationally that Jalen's contract was an overpay when he first got it. And from my perspective in Boston and as someone who's just watched his entire evolution, I thought that's absurd that he'll be probably worth that deal by the time it actually kicks in. And also just the the way that the marketplace is set up, that it was kind of a no brainer. Like you're not going to, you know, you're not going to, if like, if you don't give him the money and he leaves, it's like, you can't even come close to replicating that kind of value. But Brown was immediately with his improvements this year, clearly worth that money. And I think what's into, so to actually answer what you're saying, uh, Brown is best off offensively as a complimentary score. He, um, because his, his strengths have usually been, uh, have been his physicality, especially his aerial physicality, his tight, quick jump shot, his ability to hit the brakes, things of that nature. He's more of an off-ball spot-up player than he is a bring-the-ball-up creator. And so he's improved his pick-and-roll playmaking a little bit this year. It started to appear. uh, He's improved his handle like remarkably over the course of the last four seasons. And so that's allowed him to be a um, a much more dynamic scorer but he's better off in the type of role that he is, and that really plays to his strengths. And then the same thing on defense, where you know Tatum, like he's he's better in a in more of a lead ball handler role offensively. And then on defense, he's generally better guarding up size a little bit and being in more of a help defensive role. While Jalen Brown usually takes on more of a point of attack defensive role and guards down positions, and he's really great at it. And he's become one of the best in the league at it. So there's actually even within Boston, there's a bit of a misnomer that Jason Tatum's like a superior defender to Jalen Brown when in reality Tatum like because of what Brown does in taking on a a lot of the assignments and having a similar role to what Avery Bradley had when he was in Boston like he Avery Bradley uh would take on a lot of the big assignments and then Marcus smart would therefore be allowed to play the passing lanes and make the big plays. And so people thought that Marcus smart was a superior defender when in reality it was that they were both playing each other's role, but by taking on the kind of dirty work role of being the on ball defender that doesn't get to make a lot of the exciting plays, you're enabling your teammates to do that. And I think Jalen Brown within the organization gets that recognition. And it seemed like when, with the athletics uh, defensive player of the year surveys that there were some other front offices have felt the same way but you know those guys just they complement each other so well on both ends their personalities complement each other well I, I think that they have they really have an ideal star pairing which as we've seen especially like with philadelphia getting the star pairing right is extremely hard it's hard enough to get stars to get stars that complement each other with their games and their personalities that's that's incredibly difficult and they seem to be managing it so far pretty well well, and you bring up Philadelphia, and I think that's an it's an interesting example here because both Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are immensely talented players. But there is often a feeling, and I think you can even you hear this periodically too, but you also see it on the court with with their demeanor that 
one of them being dominant, one of them ball, ball dominant, sometimes whether the scoring, the effectiveness is there or not, is taking something away from the other. And they are wonderfully paired defensively. I mean, Simmons' defense, I think, is is often underappreciated. And I think at, we're at a certain point where Joel Embiid's is as well. But they're different, obviously, than the Celtics guys. But the idea with their offense not being as they're not they're not amplifying each other. And there are a lot of examples and there are examples of great players that did great things together that I don't think their offense amplified each other. Like I I would say the same was true with Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant. Both players immensely talented, but that that their each one of their presence didn't help the other as much as one would think. And I think that's largely true of of Simmons and Embiid as well. But with Brown and Tatum partially due to the way their games are structured, also that both of them can shoot, which is a nice a nice little perk of that. But I like that you brought up with Brown the uh, the idea of kind of like d- the degree of difficulty of the defensive responsibility because defense is hard enough in in the abstract to evaluate. But something that I genuinely believe makes it even more difficult is there are very few counting stats, and those are skewed towards what I would call defensive playmakers. So you could use, we'll go back to the Sixers well, and you say Matisse Thibel. Like Matisse Thibel, who is a wonderful defender, I'm not saying he's bad or anything like that, his game is really well suited to getting those counting stats. He's very aggressive. He gets a lot of steals. He gets a lot of blocks. He also fouls a ton, which doesn't help you in those things, but you know that's one of the consequences. Jalen Brown, part of what I really like about him defensively, I sure it'd be great. The more steals you get, that creates transition, like that changes the possession. But there are lots of ways, like Clay Thompson is an example of this too, who are good <laughs> defenders, but don't necessarily get those stats. And so it can be hard for like a, a box score model, it can be hard for a lot of things to get there. And it's really dirty because like you get in the same point. I mean, because I'm a national guy, people come at me from every fan base, so I have to actually watch the games. But I think it is true in certain cases, and I think that's true of Jalen Brown's defense. You, you literally read my mind because as you were saying that, I'm thinking this is Clay Thompson. Yeah. Like I was, I was gonna, I was gonna bring up Clay if you weren't because I, I love Clay's defense. One of my favorite defenders of the generation, and I, I feel like he's like I, I, there's so many, there's so many of the talking heads that I really respect that I've heard them say that they think Clay Thompson's defense is overrated, and maybe they're seeing something that I'm not seeing, but. And I'm and I'm judging him mostly on his playoff performances when like that's like you know, honestly when I was really watching the Warriors play. But I have found that there is there are so few wing defenders that have the level of discipline and ability to know how to defend different positions from like an actual strategic and mental standpoint where it's not just that he has a physical capability to do it, but he just, he knows the techniques of how to defend a pull-up point guard, a physical attack, high-speed athletic point guard, uh, you know, like a, a big wing creator or a finesse wing creator. Like he just can be every type of defender. And I think that's a big thing that Jalen Brown's evolution has been that we're just seeing him, he's able, he's adding different types types of defenders into his arsenal um, and he's just becoming more and more versatile in that regard which is important because one there's a possibility they might have to move on from Marcus Smart at some point if they want to do some sort of big splash uh, reconfiguring of their rotation and the idea that because Smart right now is like the most versatile defender in the NBA besides I guess like Ben Simmons basically um, and so Right now, they they're able like they have their defensive scheme that works great, and then they also know that whenever they play in a, a great team, they can put Smart on the best pl- opposing player, pretty much regardless of size or type. 
and they are going to want to see Jalen prove that he also is capable of taking that on. And if he shows that, then that gives them even more flexibility if they have to make some really difficult decisions down the road. So, and as someone who enjoys covering Marcus Smart more than probably any other player I've ever covered, I would I would be pretty disappointed if he ever left. But obviously, this is the NBA, and players move on at some point. Um, but uh, yeah, Jalen is probably never going to get recognized as an elite level defender. And there's and and like there's a lot of the stuff that like Tatum excels at or that Smart excels at that are the extremely unique things that and the things that stand out that is part of being an elite defender. Like you do also have to do those pretty remarkable things that stand out. Um, and you do have to even transcend the role that you're put in to really be considered an elite defender. But I think he's he is and like I guess I guess this could also be a, a a uh, maybe that criticism, but a way to say that Clay isn't an amazing defender is that he is really good at being a really good defender. He's just he is he is fantastic at all the stuff that he needs to do, but he just generally doesn't really get tasked with doing any of the like really remarkable stuff. Right, but and I think that a part of what is interesting for both the Celtics and the Warriors was that when you can execute that well one through four, it also changes the responsibilities of your five. And so that that's another underrated part of why the Warriors, I mean, there are a bunch of reasons why the Draymond degrees at center lineup worked, was they they were able to put out, so what I describe center, the center position in a lot of systems as being like putting out fires, cleaning up cleaning up mistakes that other people make. And the fewer mistakes your one through four make, the fewer seams are created, the less the center has to do. And that doesn't mean like Daniel Tice and Ennis Kanter and theoretically Robert Williams are, are, are bad in any way, shape, or form. Not, not necessarily. But, they, but giving them less to do makes it easier to, make, to, to have the whole system work. And that's what I think the seams thing is what I wanted to talk about with Jalen Brown is that sometimes the best way to measure success for those players who are, especially when they're on ball, is... You know, sometimes people look at the like, oh, what are we got the opponent's shooting percentage when they were guarded or anything like that. It's just like, how many seams do they give up? How many times did the player who they were guarding, did they create an advantage that ended up making something good for their team? And the best guys there, and then that's hard to tally, it's hard to hard to figure out, but it's just kind of it's more anecdotal, but it's just how I watch the sport now. And Jalen Brown has gotten a lot better at that. Like, and he was already pretty good at it as, as, a, as a rookie all those years ago. But like, that's something I really like is that there, he, you don't see him being like the original sin very often in a defensive mistake. I like that. The original sin. That's beautiful. That should be a stat because they're like the, one of the big things that I had to eventually learn when I was learning how to actually watch film is recognizing like the, finding that original sin. You, you know, the, like, you know what was great for me? Sorry to interrupt. Monte okay. Ellis when I started covering the Warriors. Oh, like, God, when I started yeah. covering the Warriors, Monte Ellis did that constantly. And so yeah. then I, I grew to learn to look for it. Yeah, you got to find the spark that starts the chain reaction, not the end of the chain. And that's why there's so many guys they, that people think are bad defenders, and they're not. They're just stuck. They're stuck uh, holding the dynamite when it actually goes off because somebody else lit the fuse. And so um, Jalen Brown – one of the biggest critiques I think of his defense, even up through last year was that he was getting beat at the point of attack too much. And, um, mostly by bigger, more physical wings, which is ironic talking about a six foot six, 225 pound, uh, guy. But, um, he, he, his technique with his hands on the offensive player's hip was not good. He just didn't, he didn't know how to use his hands on defense correctly yet. And, um, he also would open his hips kind of slowly before he started moving. And so he was just kind of like giving up a step and 
his reaction timing just got way better. Um, he's like figured out how to use his hands in a legal way to basically get away with legal hand checking as it's kind of, as it exists in in today's rules. Um, and so that's allowed him to just give up way less dribble penetration. And then his awareness when he's like covering the guy that's over the slot who wants to cut down the weak side, um, he's not giving up those backdoor cuts or I guess, I don't know what you would call cutting down the slot from the weak side if that's backdoor or not but he's not cutting he's not allowing those open cuts that he used to give up too often um and so you know people would focus on like how he would have trouble when he was younger guarding lebron james lebron james on the block and it's like yeah well like that's that's a that's like a five percent of your actual defensive usage kind of thing and he has actually gotten a lot better uh, a big part of that uh, defending with his hands thing is he's actually gotten a lot better at handling post-ups from more powerful guys. So he's no longer a wing that you can take advantage of by putting him on the block. So that's, that's a huge testament to how he's improved. But so he's just, he's become more consistent and you know, he, he still has like a ways to go for sure. But I, I think that he's proven every single year to make like a pretty solid uh, improvement across the board and he's really shown that he can improve on his weakness areas like the areas that were his big weaknesses when he came into the league his pull-up shooting capability his his literally when he was a rookie he couldn't even dribble in the open court like he would try to dribble in transition and would dribble it off his knee and it would go out of bounds and now he has like a very tight handle and can create in really tight spaces so i think he's, he's that's one of the reasons why i'm so optimistic on him is he's demonstrated that that his work ethic and his ability to improve and work smart is really through the roof. And that ties in with something that, I mean, it's the, it's the good fortune of the team that I was closest to geographically being the Warriors for, you know, starting in 09 is I grew, I grew to really appreciate how much even really talented players have to improve once they're in the league. And that's, it's, it can be big things like getting a faster, more reliable jump shot. It can be more piecemeal, like developing different dribble counters or getting your defensive timing better. It can be a lot of different things. And, and so with Brown and with Tatum in different respects, they've both improved in really important ways since they entered the league and they started strong. And not every player, you know, some of that I think, especially in the defensive end, was due to Brad Stevens' scheme and their aptitude for picking things up. But that it, it bodes really well for where this is going. And that doesn't mean that necessarily it's a lock that either guy is a like superstar, best player in a championship team, but it gives you more outs and it gives you more uh, like a, a better base to build from for the rest of the roster. Also, when you consider having two guys that are wing sized and those are so valuable around the league, now you they can they don't have to hunt those as aggressively as other teams do. Yeah, and like for me, my 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 theories of basketball evolution tend to line up pretty closely with uh, the Celtics, actually. So it might see a little bit homerism, but it is actually the way I see it too. And my big thing is just uh, you know I referred to T Mac during our uh, pre taping thing is that of, of when I thought basketball offense actually started becoming beautiful was I've always felt that having a team full of wings that can run pick and roll is the optimal strategy for building an offense that can't be game planned against. And that's what the Celtics are going for. And I think it's working really well and it's really proving itself out. Um, and so the fact that they can build a foundation on those two guys is really, is really amazing. And that's what put, and that's going back to just the ideal star pairing thing where that's where 
they've really hit the home run there is that they're not only two star or I guess emerging stars that can fit together nicely, but they're both playmaking or I mean, Jalen has a way to go before we can call him a full playmaker, but at least two really top notch scoring wings that are two way players. And that's, I think that's like the real recipe for success. And a stat that I wanted to mention before I even forgot was even with Jason Tatum taking him like a while to come around uh, and like really hit a stride, he still led the NBA this season in adjusted field goal percentage um, on pull up pick, uh, in the in the pick and roll. So pick and roll ball handler pull ups, which is like what I think is the go to shot and like the important shot in the NBA right now. So even with him having a rough start to the season, he's still already led the league in that. And that's, that's like pretty spectacular and bodes pretty well for his potential to turn into a, you know, probably MVP caliber player. The the challenge that I see with Tatum and remember these are, this is early days relative to where he wants to go in his career. And it might just be that this is the next step. So Tatum, we're getting really close to the point where we can say, as a like as a creator for himself, especially when you consider Tatum's size and the confidence that he had towards the end of that in February and March, shooting pull-ups, shooting step-backs, that he can create for himself. So the next stage in an ideal world would be you take that threat. And when once defenses get to the point where they acknowledge that threat and change their behavior, is that when you get that additional attention, then it becomes not shooting the pull up over the defenders that are there. It becomes using that to using that lever to create good opportunities for other people. And Tatum, I, I'm confident that he can get there, but it is such so like if he never does. Still an incredibly valuable player. Thought he was an all-star this year, you know, and and you think, you know, guy in his early 20s can still really improve. But to me, if you're talking about the idea that he could potentially be an MVP, it's that next lever that you have to pull is that you create the panic and then you harness the panic to make things easier on your teammates. And then that's when you really start to get a good offense coming out of it. Yeah, to create the panic and then harness. You should write a book. I'm telling you, man, you know how to talk. Um and the so that's a thing. And the reason why I'm talking in some extreme superlatives about him is that I think that uh, he has demonstrated a lot of that so far. And so the biggest thing was when he um, that the game that they lost in L.A. that was on, I think, on ABC on Sunday uh, in January, I want to say that was that was one of the breakthrough moments for him, because that was the game where they started sending high traps to him and trying to force him to pick up his dribble. And he was able to bounce off the pick and roll, get draw that trap out and then make the swing pass to the next guy in the offense and open up the offense. And so ideally he could he could go even further than that but that's like the big next step is whether or not defenses that are blitzing you whether they can completely take you out of your game and most importantly force you to pick up your dribble and he's shown that over the course of the year he's learned how to combat that trap he's gotten a lot better at it over the last few months and so that's the thing that i thought that would be what he would figure out next season and we're starting to see in the limited times that we've seen it so far this year he's starting to figure it out and i'm pretty sure we're going to see a ton of blitzing in the uh in the playoffs against them teams are probably going to sell out a lot more to get the ball out of his hands when he's hot 
God. And then, of course, there's actual passing and playmaking. And he can make like some of the basic reads when he's coming over a screen. He can he can at least do the slip pass uh, or the drop off pass to the big that's in the paint. He can hit both of of the corners, but he isn't necessarily a deadly passer yet or even close to it. So I think that's another uh, huge evolution for him. But I think he's kind of following in Kawhi Leonard's footsteps offensively, essentially, as far as like a path forward of how to improve himself. You know, that's obviously a you know a pretty high bar. I'm not going to put him at that yeah, bar yet, it, but it's it's more on the lines of a best case scenario. But it is a reasonable skill progression. I think that's what you're getting at. Is like Kawhi, it was yes. unusual. You know, like. Shooting first, then ball handling, and kind of pull, getting to a spot. And they're a little they they succeed in different ways, but I get the idea that you're that you're kind of headed towards. And I think the other kind of way that also, well, I guess we could just talk about it as a, as a separate thing, which is the one of the challenges that comes from that blitz. And I mean, we've brought we've invoked the Bucks a few times here. Is that you then need to have the players that can capitalize on that additional attention. We've already discussed Jalen Brown. And then that, to me, you, I, I think that's going to take some work. It's going to take some development of players that are already on roster. So I, I kind of want to go through the young guys a little bit briefly with the, the idea of kind of like where you think, where you, think that you, you are on them at this point in the, in the process. And uh, I, I guess we'll start, let's start with the 2019 draftees, um, Romeo Lankford and Grant Williams. Yeah, R- Romeo, they took him as a four-year project. Um, the fact that he was even yielding some rotation value was pretty surprising, honestly. His defense um, was better than I expected. Right? That was the surprise. Was I, I forget who it was, but someone on the team told me that they thought he was their best on-ball defender right now, which is uh, – he was doing well at the time, but you have uh, you have a few other defenders on that team that probably deserve that accolade. But the fact is, is that – He's actually a pretty solid on-ball defender against twos, even ones it seems like he can handle. Maybe not in pick and roll, but off-ball he definitely can handle. He's got really nimble feet, which is ironic because I think his foot his footwork on offense is terrible, but his footwork on defense is actually pretty good. Um, and so he showed that he had some defensive versatility, which I think will earn him some minutes in the playoffs because he's a pretty unique type of defender for what they need. You know, they need a you know a lengthy wing with some athleticism and speed. And he's the only defender in the rotation outside of their starters that brings them that. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets in there for some very specific matchups. And then he and he had like a pretty infamously horrendous jump shot. Uh, his the set point of his jump shot was up behind like the back of his skull. It was like Kevin Garnett meets Carlos Boozer meets a catapult from the 15th century. And he was just flinging the ball wildly at the rim. The fact that he hit any shots, even pull-up shots was pretty remarkable in college, but um, they did a really nice job over the off season of lowering that set point. And, he still hyperextends like his wrists and his elbows to a degree that seems alarming on a jump shot, but it has become a lot more stable and consistent. Um, so he's it's still like a pretty flat shot, and he has a long way to go before it's really useful. But he can at least sit in the corner, and you can spot up to him. So he can provide some very basic 3 and D utility for them right now. They're hoping that he can become a pretty dynamic playmaking wing or even become like a big point guard basically for them. And I mean, he was the, I think, what, sixth ranked uh, recruit coming out of high school. I mean, the guy's got tremendous talent, um, but it's just like there's so many big fundamental uh, technique things that he needs to work out to you know, become a useful rotation player. But 
I mean, he was a 14th pick. Like he's going to be a rotation player most likely. And he's, and he, he seems to, it, he reminds me of James Young who they drafted like what, five or six years ago. And that he was a similar size player, raw talent kind of thing. And James Young just like, didn't care about basketball and he fell out pretty quickly. Romeo does not seem to be that kind of person. And the fact that he's changed his jump shot and so many things in his game so much, I think is a good indicator that he's going to work and improve. Um, Grant, actually, do you have anything to say before I keep well, my yeah, what, diatribe going? What I want to say with Romeo is the defense will get him on the court, but his offense needs to reach a certain threshold in order for him to stay on the court. And sure. I think he can get there, but it's it's always a challenge. You know, when somebody has to start, basically build it from scratch offensively, I'm just going to have to wait and see. And I think you, the idea that you brought up of him being a four-year project is a totally fair one. And... The hard thing about those is there are a lot of times that those four-year projects don't, you know, they become 40-year projects functionally. And and, and I don't think that's necessarily going to happen with Romeo. I, I think that there are a lot of things that I like about his game. But I, I always, you know, and this is kind of the thing about watching 30 teams and these developments is that – it's it's just it's just a, a challenging process, and but it, work ethic is an exceedingly important part of it. The the quality of the development coaches is another important part of it. And but what I like about Langford is that it's the if he does if if the shot gets to the point where it's passable, where teams will respect it, then the other things fall into place really really quickly. Yeah, and you know I I think they they took him hoping he could turn into kind of a Will Barton type of player. And I don't think he's quite as explosive, but I think that's kind of the template that they were hoping for. And, you know, that that doesn't call on him to to reach the kind of lofty goals that he probably could have projected to back when he was in high school and was like a top six or so, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Recruiting class player. So, you know, the, the pressure isn't really on him to become this like complete playmaker that he originally hoped for, but just to become a smart a smart player that can you know that can use his athleticism and his and his handling to be able to finish over people. So there's just not a lot of pressure, at least in these next couple of years, for him to turn into somebody with significant responsibility. So I th- I think he's kind of in the similar situation to where Terry Rozier was, where with Rozier it was they just wanted him to get out there and really make an impact on defense and then just get his shot to the point that they could trust him to hit some shots when he's off ball out there. So there's not much pressure on him for the next couple of years. I think it's that year four is when there's a lot of pressure there, um, especially because by year four, they're probably going to be relying on him to be one of their core rotation players. Right. And as much as the Celtics have the benefit of two wings kind of towards the top of their rotation, you still need to fill it out and you need to have, you know, let's say five capable guys there, maybe even more if you're starting, you know, if you're playing them at, at more positions. And so Langford at some point will need to step into one of those spots just because they don't have that many bites at the apple, especially when you're going to have a, like run a, a deeper center rotation or at least just have them on roster. And Grant Williams is an interesting part of that because like kind of like Langford in a very specific way that there are a lot of things that I like. And so the if it works, it works idea is very much there for Grant Williams. But in a way that parallels Romeo Langford, a big part of the if it works is going to be his jump shot. Oh, for sure. And, you know, a bit just to finish with Romeo, like the, the thing that's important with him, he's the only person on their roster outside of their core group that has a potential to have ball skills. 
And that's like a huge thing they're missing. Not only are they yeah, missing that's a sharp true. Shooter, I hadn't thought about it, but you're right. Yeah. They're young guys. And that's I mean, not what their young guys have. Yeah. And like, I mean, Tremont Waters has tremendous skills, but he's, you know, like the likelihood of him that's becoming a different, a... That's a different part of the process. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, although I'm, I'm finishing a feature on Tremont right now, and he's a, he's a pretty fascinating guy and definitely will be... I can't imagine he, him not being in their rotation next year. Um, but so, Grant... Grant... Uh, I got to bring up the actual numbers, but... Grant Williams, his three-point shooting is terrible because he started 0 for 26. But then after that, he shot pretty well. And he was at, like, at a certain point, he was shooting like 45% from three after like, in like the 20 attempts or so after he went 0 for 26 to start out. So I'm trying to talk slowly so I can bring up the end numbers. So he's 25% for the year. But let's see if I go into game logs, it can actually split this out and give us some actual insight here. But basically, the point is, is that once they finally broke duck on that streak, he okay. here we go. He shot 35 percent on one and a half attempts per game after he finally hit his first three pointer. So and he did have a one, two, three, four, five game streak where he did not hit a three and went over one or over two at every single game. So he clearly goes through these streaks where he's very hot and cold. Um, it, the thing for him, I think, is that being a stationary shooter, while like he just needs so many more reps because it's like a pretty new part of his game, I think it's like a relatively easy thing for him to develop because his his game offensively used to require just like tons of banging and stuff like that. And for him, I think he relishes the idea of just being able to stand out there and just take a quick catch and shoot three. So I, I do think it's something that's going to come around for him. The question is whether he'll be good enough that it'll make up for the fact that he doesn't create that much more scoring opportunities for himself on offense. I do think he's going to turn into a really good uh, pick and roll option because he's so good at passing out of the short roll. Um, his problem obviously is the lack of size makes it hard for him to be a finisher. And, you know, just the lack of size is the big, that's like, that's the big crux for him is he does so much stuff. Well, he's so good as a big on the perimeter on both ends. He functions so well out there. Um, but it's just like when he gets down low, it's, you know, he gets just the fact that he's given up like five inches usually is the huge, huge issue for him. And as smart as he is with using his body and elbowing guys and all that kind of stuff, it only gets you so far. So there's like a pretty clear ceiling for him, but he's, he's going to maximize his floor. That's for sure. He is. And a, a, a proxy that I use sometimes for that kind of a little bit under athletic or too small or whatever is when a, a, a guy who's bigger, who plays a bigger position, doesn't have as big a disparity between shots in the restricted area and from floater range. So using basketball references splits, 27% of Grant Williams shots came within three feet and 20% came from three to 10. And ideally you want that shifted as closely to the basket as you can because Players make more of those. And yeah, his floaters went in 54% of the time. That's very good for a floater. But the idea behind it is you're imposing your will more. You're also drawing more fouls. There are all these other ancillary benefits to it. And so there are some guys who just either they're, they're a little bit reluctant or they just don't have the physical tools to get all the way. And so, yeah, that, that could end up being a persistent problem with Williams. It can be a persistent problem that he overcomes with smarts and doing other things well enough that it just doesn't matter that much. But I am I am going to keep an eye on that. And something else with, with Williams is I like the way that he can attack mismatches. And if the Celtics end up at a point where teams are switching a lot of things involving Williams, not because of Williams, but because of the other guy, 
that could end up opening some avenues for him as well. Yeah, I think so. Like the three areas where I see his offense evolving is one where they get where they have him at the five and a switch uh, going up against a switch defense, which teams are going to have to increasingly switch more and more and more as as the as uh, Tatum and Brown get better and better, and so. He's going to be able to take wings, and he's going to, and they're going to probably clear out and put him on the block and let him go to work on the block, and he can just muscle right through them and get to a uh, to a jump hook floater. Um, so there's that. There's improving his offhand so that he could become a a shoulder to the chest type of aerial finisher at the rim. So right now he can his vertical is to the point that he like when he finishes at the rim he like barely even dunks it half the time, and so that just leaves him super exposed to like seven foot centers that can come in and they can contest him. So his big thing I think is going to be learning how to set up his attack that he can take a gather dribble to like the restricted circle and use that gather dribble to shield the ball and get his shoulder out in front and then just throw all of his weight into the into the defender going vertical at the rim and then finishing with a side hook and that's that's in his bag it's just going to take him a while to really you know get comfortable with that and get confident with it but i think once he's able to do that that's going to enable him to start becoming a much more aggressive finisher and be able to finish at the rim so like there's a reason there's a reason why grant williams is grant williams and why like college people love him so much and why scouts all loved him is that like the guy knows how to use his body he knows how to play his game and he knows like he knows very clearly how he's going to be able to develop into a useful NBA player and he also is a co-host on my podcast which helps <laughs> that does help oh let's get let, i was i wasn't going to spend as much time on on carson edwards but we should talk about it briefly i mean the, for me it's basically his three-pointer has to be great in order for him to be a rotation player because you know six foot six six foot about even i would say six foot flush and you know he can create a little bit for other people but i always think i think of him as being better at creating for himself and that player just needs to be able to shoot the absolute lights out in order to play in the NBA. And I'm not saying Edwards can't. I'm saying he's going to have to. Yeah, I, I can tell you, I'm six feet, and I'm pretty sure I got like an inch and a half on him. So okay. I don't, so I don't think he's actually that big. Range. Yeah, yeah, like I'm, I'm twice his size. So um, he, he this year just like he didn't like there was nothing to build off of that we saw so far this year. Um, even in Maine, he was okay when he was playing in the G league, but he wasn't even really standing out there, but he definitely, you could see his comfort level and the way that he likes to play. Like he's a very interesting type of player. He's like this point guard that I don't know if it's because his thighs are so gigantic that he can't even put them together like a normal human being, but the way that he attacks, he like attacks, like he has his legs spread out and he's like kind of like sitting back in an invisible chair chair a lot of the time so he's just like this super shifty like super balanced player and i think he just he needs i guess what would make him an effective nba player is if he could be this like super unpredictable snaky guy with the ball and be able to pull up confidently from everywhere on the floor doing that and that'll give him a nice career as a backup point guard if he can pull that off but so far this year we just did not see a semblance of it there were times where he went up for layups and like missed the rim because he was just shook. I mean, it was it was a complete mess. And the thing is, like he's an older rookie. He's the same age as Tatum, I think. Like he's not he's not a nineteen or twenty year old. Like he's already relatively late on his development curve. Yeah, so the fact 20, that twenty two after three years at Purdue. Yeah. So the it's there is some some real concern that um that he's not that he just like isn't gonna work in the NBA. But we do know that if when he's hot, he is extremely hot. But there yeah, were some that people, game against the Cavs. Or yeah, the quarter exactly. against the Cavs. 
Yeah, but there there were some people that um, I remember after the draft telling me that they felt like Carson Edwards just got super overrated by his March Madness performances, and that like if you watch his conference title runs and some of the stuff before that, that you'd see he's just like completely streaky and unpredictable. Now the Celtics have a pretty good track record of college scouting, so I'm sure they weren't surprised. They did they never even take Bar- March Madness darlings anyway, so I definitely know that's not the case there, but. Um, this season just like it was just so bizarre how out of it he was this year the last guy on the young front that i want to talk about is robert williams again another year that was just weird injuries and and just didn't only spend i think about 300 minutes in the nba but i still i'm tantalized by him i think that the physical tools are there and i think that he could be a a nasty defensive player and some intriguing offensive offensive foundational stuff as well what has it as somebody who's kind of watched that whole journey for the time ward more closely, like how are you feeling about it? Uh, not great. I, I, I can tell you, he is—he's a very unique player. Like if you really dig into his skill set, it's very—it's very—it's not what you would expect from a player like that. Um, but the the health concerns um, are one thing, and that he just like he's so rarely been available so far that we just have such little footage of him and experience seeing him play. But also that. I haven't really seen the skill or the um, or the physical development. He's he's one of these guys that he is very he's very similar to Clint Capella in a lot of ways physically, and I'm not a fan of these centers that have very loose um, footwork and just like very kind of. I guess like kind of lax body language that are very kind of like gangly and like their, their, their limbs are just kind of dangling when they're on defense. Like I want to see rigidity. I want to see like purpose. Like that's, that's what I really like about Daniel Tice. Daniel Tice is like not that good of an athlete, but he has very good technique and he, he glides very smoothly on defense and, and time Lord's like the opposite of that. And maybe that's because he's constantly caught in the space time continuum. And so it's just pulling his body in different directions. I don't know. But he he just he hasn't physically matured yet. And that's a problem considering he also was having this like significant injury problem that is putting his that's like really jeopardizing his career so far. Now, he like just got healthy right before the season um, ended. So or went on pause. So maybe he comes out now and he's the guy that they were hoping he would be and everything's fine. But we have no idea what it's going to be yet. But he is he can be if he works out. It's gonna ha- it's gonna make a huge impact on this team's title chances long term because he can provide so much so many things that they don't have and provide them a different option at the five that is just so unbelievably valuable and it's like kind of the exact opposite of the way that they do their offense now so it'll make them just so much harder to game plan against. Yeah, it, I, I think. Every every year or two, there there's a big man who you just need those first four years to kind of figure it out, and it could be because their game is still evolving. It could be because, in his case, he's just missing a bunch of time. And I feel like you and I are going to be sitting around in early 2022, just being like, he's going to be a pending restrict agent. I have no idea where the hell it's going. <laughs> the Nolan's Noel conundrum, as yes. it's known. I, 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 um, I think that's a distinct possibility. Yeah, and I mean, Noel's obviously way more talented. Than he, well, actually, maybe not. You know, so let, let's quickly dig into Time Lord's skill set because it's so unique. You know, he's he's a thunderous a thunderous lob threat. Um, he's only six ten or maybe six nine actually, but he plays like he's seven feet because he's got really long arms. Good he's catch got like radius. A, 
really great catch radius. He must have probably close to a 40 inch vertical. So he plays way above the rim and he's a really like they, they throw up everything to him and he comes down with it and his catching ability is pretty impressive. So like he can, they, they can turn into a lob team that plays a vertical spacing out of nowhere, which is like the one huge thing that they just don't have. They're not much of a hard rolling team. And when they are a hard rolling team, it's usually with Ennis Cantor, who's a completely ground bound pick and roll threat, even if he does have a great catch radius. Um, but so he gives them that huge pick and roll threat, but he also is a really good passer and he's a really good passer from all sorts of different spots on the floor. And he, he just, he, he has vision and he's able to very, like kind of very slyly rifle, really good passes that are on target. And he makes all these really creative passes. And one of the most interesting ones I've seen him do is I think he was like on the roll, caught the ball and was like forced towards the weak side block. And he just like very quickly spun around and rifled a one handed pass to the weak side elbow for a wide open three. And it was just like stuff like that. The Celtics have pretty much never had a role man, uh, at least like in the modern era that can do anything like that. Cause Horford was just never really used as a role man. So, uh, Williams provides them this really interesting option where they can they can send him rolling kind of like wherever they want to on the floor, and he can still play make out of that and make some big passes to hit shooters. So there's a lot of really interesting ways that they can use him in the offense. Um, and then his actual like post up game is pretty mediocre. He used to do a lot of face up stuff in college that we've pretty much haven't seen any of so far in the pros. Um, and then, I'll, and then of course, as a transition guy, like he can fly out in transition and make all sorts of crazy stuff happen. And we all remember that when Mill Dunkey had at Texas was A and M or Tech. I can't even remember anymore. A and M, I want to say he, right. He played at A and M. There we go. Yeah. So yeah, so he's he's a really unique, really unique type of player on offense. And then on defense, his feet. While I don't like his um, his his physical nature on defense, his feet move really well on the perimeter, and he can definitely switch across the board. So they can use him both in a switch scheme and in a drop scheme, which is extremely rare for a player of that size. And that's exactly why I'm so interested in, in, in Williams and think that there is something there. Is his, is his feet uh, defensively? I think that I think that he move they move well. He's not a plotting guy, and I, I think that reps will just make a world of difference for him to communicate and identify what's going on, and for other people to understand what he does well. And so that's why it might take a couple of years, but I do think I think there's something there. I'm not sure we'll get to see it. We we don't always get that opportunity. Uh, the, la- the last guy that I really want to talk about, we- we've alluded to him a few different times, is Gordon Hayward. Remember, Gordon Hayward, like, originally he was like the, you know, like the, the Hayward Kyrie Irving, you know, situation. It looked like icing on the cake. And then, it's going to be real, G. I mean, it's, it's crazy how quickly that turned due to circumstances completely outside of everyone's control. But where do you see his role on the team this year, next year, assuming he picks up that player option? Because, I, I could have seen it in a different world where Gordon Hayward would decline that player option and you know do kind of like what Harrison Barnes did, take less money per year but lock up the security. But just the craziness of this market, I think that he kind of has to pick it up. So yeah, I mean, I think before everything fell apart with COVID, there was some possibility that he was going to try to opt out and look for a four-year deal at maybe something like $80 million or maybe even a little bit more than that. But Unless the cap is artificially inflated to be held up to where it's expected to go, it looks like there is no chance that's happening. So he's going to opt in and he'll play this out and then he'll hope that next season goes well enough that someone's going to give him a three-year deal when he's going to be going into his mid-30s and that they're confident that his health is going to hold up. So, I mean, this season – 
as far as on-court play, he's been pretty much everything that they were hoping he would be. Like he's been pretty consistent. He's been relatively healthy. Um, you know, it's like he, he has soreness right now, which is basically the big red flag and the big concern is that he has soreness in that foot where he had the surgery from the ankle break. And he's been off for four months now, just at home doing rehab, rest and recovery and then ramp up. And the fact that he's experiencing soreness, which is what he claims in his press conference last week, um, that's concerning. And even he was like, yeah, it's concerning. I don't know what's going on. It is what it is. He probably should have just not said anything at all in hindsight. But, hey, I appreciate him giving me a story he didn't need to. But so either way, that's a concern. If he continues to play well and play the way that he's been playing through it, then I guess it's not really an issue. If he has to deal with soreness management, most guys, once they hit 30 in the NBA, have to deal with that anyway. So it's not out of the ordinary. Obviously, what you're concerned about is that it turns into a stress reaction and then it, he has to sit out and that's the concern. So if that doesn't happen, then and he just needs like significant load management for the next few years, I think the rest of his career will go pretty well. Um, as far as like actual play this year, he isn't as explosive of a finisher as he usually, at least as he was pre-injury, maybe that comes back next year, but he's kind of right at that age because he's at 30 now where it's like right where the it would naturally be declining if he was fully healthy. So maybe it just never quite gets back to that point. But he's, for one, like Gordon Hayward would make some a really good score is that he has this incredible floater game and this amazing ability to get, lo- like to get his hips and his knees down and hit the brakes and kind of take these long controlled strides to be able to get pretty much any angle off on like a short you know five to eight foot floater jump shot and he's really really successful with it so even though he's not finishing at the rim like he used to that part of his game is still really good and so he's still able to finish in the paint pretty much as much as he wants to and then he's probably the Celtics best playmaker or you know right up there so he's he's been he's been pretty much as advertised in all those respects this year and this has been a really good bounce back year for him. Yeah, even though the Celtics are a different team than Hayward expected them to be when he signed there, I think that he is a really good fit for where they for where they've turned out. And I think he'll opt in. I think he'll fit in well next year. Hopefully he can stay healthy and then you just see where it is moving forward. And health is is also a, a big part of the storyline. I, I guess we'll use that as the broader term for the Eastern Conference and something else that I think the Celtics will benefit from in the early going in the seeding games is that you know, the bottom of the East is very weak. The Nets and Wizards are skeleton crews. And then the Indiana Pacers are going to be without Victor Oladipo, who was their best player when he was healthy more more two years ago and even three years ago than, than last year because he's been hurt for so long. But I think that it's going to be, even if they don't catch Toronto, and I don't expect Boston will, they're three games down with seven with eight to play. That's That's just a big margin if Toronto plays competently, which I think they will. And so, but I mean, that does mean an easier first round series, I would expect. Yeah, I mean, they got to get past the Wizards, obviously. If they can somehow manage that, I think they'll be okay. But that, I think they're probably very relieved that the likelihood of them facing Philadelphia in the first round has dropped precipitously because that, that, that would have been huge. high risk for both teams. That's true. That's true. Uh, anything else that is kind of, I mean, we're less than a month away from hopefully the return of basketball. Is there anything else that is kind of running <laughs> through your mind right now? I mean, we didn't break down Shemi Ojale's future, but I mean, otherwise, I think we covered pretty much everything from the Celtics angle. Um, I'm just, 
I mean, for me, I'm perpetually fascinated by Philadelphia, and I'm so excited to see what happens when Philly is hopefully healthy and you have playoff Al Horford and they've had Brett Brown has had enough time to try to figure out how am I going to make this offense work. So I'm I'm so excited. Philadelphia is a team I'm by far the most excited for to watch. For me, Philadelphia, New Orleans, because you know them at full strength oh, sure. is something that we haven't seen very often. Portland, if we actually get something close to a preview of what they'll be for the 2020-21 year, I, that would be really exciting because they've just been – it's just been such a weird season. And then I'm trying to think um, – it is it is such a shame that we're going to be stuck with the Nets and uh, the Nets or the Wizards fighting for the eight seed. Well, what's funny is uh, I tweeted in I think it was like December or January. I had this thing about how like it's such a shame that we're going to have that we're going to that, that there are going to be t- good teams in the West that get out and then the East is going to be and people were like giving me so much crap because of the records and I'm like we'll see and even without even with the hiatus shortened season it's still going to be true. Well, there's an easy solution. You put the Memphis in the Eastern Conference where they belong because they are geographically eastern more than like a lot of the other East teams. Put them in the Eastern Conference, Adam. Just just do an emergency amendment, just ram it through. It doesn't matter if it violates the CBA. Just do it to fix the playoffs. Yeah, just we we just prevent the Eastern Conference teams from voting on it right now. <laughs> Honestly, or 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 even we don't we don't give them a vote, but say that the Nets get some of the playoff revenue, like whichever team would have been the eight, they just get some additional revenue and they won't complain. Yeah, just tell the Nets you get Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving back next year, and yeah. Bradley Beal when you trade Karis LeVert in a first round yeah, pick if, for him, whatever if, the if hell they're going to do. If you could guarantee us Memphis versus Milwaukee and New Orleans or Portland against the Lakers, I mean, I, I don't think there would be too many people that would be disappointed by that dynamic. Oh God, Zion versus LeBron. That's it's. I, honestly, that might be the finals right there. Which is <laughs> that's because that's just going to be so amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. All right, we'll talk about the basketball tournament on the next one. Yeah. Thanks again to Jared Weiss for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Athletic, and you can follow him on Twitter at Jared Weiss NBA, J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S-N-B-A. Love having him on, and the Celtics are such a fascinating team heading into the bubble with to see what of the J- Tatum's crazy pull-up shooting is for real, to see how Jalen Brown fares another year and the young guys, everything else. I'm really excited for it. And getting closer to actual games. I mean, still have a few more Real Jam radios. I actually have a couple of guests lined up, so that's pretty exciting. Um, and to, to get all of that going and to have actual games to discuss soon enough. Not now, but soon enough. And if you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe and download every episode. That is extremely important for a show like this that comes out at varying moments during the week, depending on my availability and guest availability. Saturday afternoon Pacific time, great example of the randomness that that can happen, but it can be really be anytime, so that's why subscribing is good. Word of mouth, extremely important, so if there's an episode or the series that you like, share it wherever you see appropriate. And leaving a rating, leaving a review, same basic idea. If it's an Apple podcast, that's great. If it's another one, I totally understand, or you can do it both places. Because that helps other people find the show. So whether it's you know Spotify or Apple or whatever it is, like if you subscribe and you review, then that helps other people find the show and it can help keep the show going, keep our lights on. And the most important thing you can do for that is check out our sponsors, Bet Online. Use the Podcast One promo code for a sign-up bonus and to tell them that you came from us. 
You can also check out my work. Nate and I are still two times a week for Dunked On, but we're doing these very in-depth young player scouting reports. We're going division by division. And incidentally, if you're into the Celtics, the next division we're doing is the Atlantic. So we talk about Tatum and Romeo Lankford and Robert Williams and numerous other guys. And then, of course, the rest of the division, Matisse Thibel, the Knicks bevy of young guys and everything else. And then you can also listen to the previous ones we've done, including recently the Northwest Division. That one came out late in this week. And we've already done the Pacific and I believe one other division. I can't remember exactly. My brain is a little bit mushy right now. Also, my written work at The Athletic have my solo off-season preview series going and the collaborative ones with Seth Partnow and Dave Dufour and Sam Vecini when he can contribute. Those are we're about done with the Delete Eight there. I actually have all of my Delete Eight off-season previews written. They will be rolled out presumably between now and the start of the bubble games. And then I actually am well into the rest of it. So my goal was to have the entire series written before, you know, other than results and stuff, before the start of the playoffs because I know how crazy things are going to be. Looks like that's going to happen. No guarantees yet. So keep your ears or I guess keep your eyes to your phones or whatever for the next episode of Real Jam Radio. It should be early next week, tentatively Monday or Tuesday. We'll see if that works out with uh, somebody I really enjoy talking with and we'll be back then so thank you so much for listening take care and make it a great day